Hello, everyone. Welcome to Season 3 of Next Stop Transit Tech with the National Center for Applied Transit Technology. We have a great season of content in store for you all, as always. My name is Andrew Carpenter. I'm the director of NCAT. Uh, we first have a couple of uh, staff changes. Marcel Moreno, who led the podcast in the first two seasons, is now a transportation planner with the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments here in D.C. We'll hopefully get her into the studio in the meantime. But we're also excited that we have a new staff member, uh, Eric Lang. My name is Eric Lang. Um, I'm stepping into Marcelo's very big and impressive shoes uh, as senior program associate here with NCAT. I uh, come by way of another technical assistance center, Transit Planning for All, hosted by the Community Transportation Association of America, where I've been helping work on inclusive planning for older adults and people with disabilities. And you also have some rural transit experience, right? What brought me to um, transportation was I was working in public health in western Colorado, really rural frontier area of western Colorado for about five years. And kind of realized that a lot of the uh, disparities and social service gaps that existed were a result of lack of transportation. Uh, so I kind of jumped in to work in regional transportation there, which led me to Washington, D.C., where I'm um, in graduate school and luckily found CTAA. It's exciting to have Eric with us. And then we're also excited to have our friends from the Heart of Iowa Regional Transit Agency, or HERDA. They are always doing great work, so we're excited to get to talk about one of their many, many projects that they're working on. In August, HERDA launched a new on-demand transit service across seven counties of rural Iowa. And on-demand transit in rural areas is still a tricky prospect, and so we're excited to see uh, how this goes. And um, it's exciting to see this development since so many areas lack on-demand transportation options. Many people in these areas have to book well in advance, so sometimes 24 hours, in some cases 72 hours ahead of the trips that they want to take. It removes a lot of flexibility from people's lives, and so implementing an on-demand system could really change how people get around in rural parts of the country. This is a great opportunity for passengers as well as for agencies such as HERDA. Julia Castillo is HERDA's executive director. Brooke Ramsey is HERDA's business manager. Julia and Brooke, thanks for joining us today. And we're excited to learn more about this service. But first, could you both introduce yourselves? I'm Julia Castillo, and I'm the executive director of HERDA. Um, I've been in this position for 12 years. And knowing that we provide a service that gives people, you know, the freedom and independence to move around their own communities is what makes this such an exciting position for me. We have a very forward-thinking team who really share a passion for transit, and it's that dedication to innovation that allows us to think big and find ways around and through barriers. Even though we are a smaller rural transit agency, we really do try to find ways to do big things. So I'm hoping this gives other people some type of inspiration for them to know that they can be small and do big things as well. My name's Brooke Ramsey. I've worked for Julia for just a little over 12 years now. Similar to Julia, I think not only myself, but the majority of our staff, if not all of our staff, are passionate about working in transportation and working at HERDA because no matter who you are or what your role is here, 
at the end of the day, whether you're the accountant or our receptionist, it all helps get people access to every facet of life that you need. Eric, I really appreciate your background and some of the things you talked about. It kind of fits into some of the work that we're doing, not only on on the on-demand service that we're talking about today, but with a lot of our other projects as well. Just imagining the access that transportation gives people. You think about being able to get in your car and drive somewhere, the things that you need to do, whether it's getting a haircut or getting groceries, getting education, you know, all of those things are able to be done using public transportation. So sorry, that's my passion. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to be sorry about there. We really want to focus in on the new on-demand transportation service that you've started. Could you tell us a little bit more about your service area and that new service in particular? Our service area, we serve seven counties in central Iowa. We are unique in that we surround the Des Moines metro area. So we have those seven counties. So we're not a clump together of counties. We cover about 4,150 square miles of area, which is pretty impressive. And the population within those seven counties is about 365,000 people. And there is a lot of diversity. We have very rural places that we serve, as well as we are integrated into some of the smaller communities. We contract paratransit service with Cyride, who is the city of Ames University fixed route service. So we have a lot of different areas and diversity that we serve. Some of our communities might be less than a thousand in population and others are part of the greater Des Moines metro with a population at 20,000 or just, you know, a little over that 20,000 threshold. Like Julia mentioned, working in the city of Ames where the population's over 70,000. So it's a pretty diverse community, not only in population, but in what that population looks like. Two questions to expand on that is, first, do you do trips into Des Moines as well? And then the second one is, do you stage your vehicles throughout this whole donut, or do you work out of a central area? Yes, we do provide trips into Des Moines. We really started that several years ago due to the need to access specialty care in smaller communities, not having access to things like cancer treatments. Some communities have no dialysis clinic. Um, In fact, we just had a dialysis clinic in a city with a population of about 7,500 people. They closed due to low patient census. However, that left three people who were driving themselves when it was just in-town treatments to, you know, now needing access to drive 40 minutes each direction. They just can't physically do that. So needing to be creative in how we can provide that service and knowing that access to care is imperative for quality of life. Since you're kind of in a donut around Des Moines, how do you make that happen? So we do have a centralized office that is actually part of the Des Moines Metro, and we do have a couple of vehicles here, but the majority of the fleet is stored throughout various locations in our service area. We have vehicles in total housed in 11 different locations. Would you be able to walk us through kind of as a passenger how they might access this service? As Julia mentioned, our service area is pretty large, so we actually have two different area codes. And a long time ago, we just decided the best method would be to have a toll-free number that we advertised. So customers can call our toll-free number to schedule advanced transportation or even on-demand service as long as we have the capacity to provide it. 
We also have folks who email their trips in, um, and we have a smartphone application that they can use to schedule and manage their own transportation as well. With introducing this on-demand version of your service, how has the experience changed for passengers? One of the things that was really important for us and how we got to this particular point was that people could live their lives more spontaneously. So they didn't have to wait 24 hours in advance to call us. And so in putting this new on-demand service in place, even though there has been some challenges and some hiccups along the way, which there is anytime you change, especially your software or change the type of service you do, we have seen a lot of compliments come in about the service, about the app, and we have seen our ridership increase. So those are three things that we have been able to look at that says, even though there has been some challenges, we know we're on the right path to get to where we want to be. We're still very early into this, just about three months. So we've learned a lot. I think our, our customers have learned a lot. Our internal staff has learned a lot. But I think we are starting to hit the goals that we had created for going to an on-demand service. Could you go into what those goals were? They were to allow people to schedule their trips easier and manage their own trips so they didn't have to call and speak to somebody. We wanted to make sure that we were able to tap into those people that were caregivers. A lot of times they are really busy during the day and they don't have time. And then we would find that they would forget a trip. Oh, I forgot to call 24 hours in advance and somebody's got a doctor's appointment you know, right now. And so allowing them to be able to use the app or to email us was very important to us as well. And we have noticed that people have been using the app more. It is a more user-friendly app than we had previously. They can manage their own trips that way. Anybody can at any time of day, 24-7. And that was really important to us. And we've seen increase in that. For the people that do have to call in or do prefer to call in, which we completely understand. We did not want that to change anything for them because some people still just need that connection to us to have that other voice on the end that says, please just help me get my trip scheduled. They don't want to take that and do that themselves. They want somebody else to help. And so we've been able to keep that service and the people that are calling in, we've been able to allow our our customer service people to actually help them and spend a little bit more time with them while other people are being able to use the app. And then, of course, as transit systems, we all want to see our ridership increase, especially due to the pandemic. So that was another area that we were really looking at. And we have some exciting things also coming up. We did receive a NADTC grant, and it is going to allow us to implement where people can use our service. They can schedule services using a web app that has 99 different languages on it. So we're super excited about being able to do that as well. One of the other things that we have been able to do, not just on demand service, but we've been able to hire a bilingual mobility coordinator as well. And so they are really going to be able to reach out to our Spanish-speaking population and help them move 
toward either using the app, better being able to use our services as they call in, or those types of things as well. So we're trying to make this very inclusive and easy for people to use. I think it's important to look back and think about those planning considerations and what got you to that point of implementation, because that really is the foundation of your current and future success. So on that point, tell us a little bit about how you got there and what instigated this and what led you to this point. In 2019, we began some work with CTAA. We contracted with them to do a needs assessment to help us perform a needs assessment. So Chris Eilinger came in and and worked with us and people in the community. They held focus groups and community outreach events and That resulted in a full report, which then included recommendations to diversify service mode, which was based on each community's individualized needs, because even though we serve all rural counties, what the people need within those counties is not always the same. We have one particular community that has 32% of that community is Latino, We don't have 32% of our whole entire state that's Latino. So that's a very condensed population and their needs are very different. And there is some fear for them calling in and giving us their name and all of their information. And so, you know, that was a segment of the population that we realized very quickly we were not serving. Also, people didn't want to call in 24 hours a day. I mean, they didn't want to call in 24 hours ahead of time. That was something that was very made very well known to us in those outreach efforts. The other thing with the large Latino population, one of the recommendations was to include a checkpoint service to eliminate those language barriers. And so we worked for a few years on how can we get funding for that? What's that going to look like? That led to us hiring a bilingual mobility coordinator. We're going to be starting a service in 2023 that is going to be that checkpoint service. We got a grant from AARP to purchase benches so that we have identified now certain uh, areas around this community where we can place those benches and those will be the stop points that people can walk to. And they don't have to give us any of their personal information, but we'll be able to serve them in the same way as those people that do use our on-demand or our demand response services too. So after developing that plan, then the pandemic was in full force. So that was something that Brooke and I then took a step back and said, we have a real opportunity here to look at what our services look like and what we want them to be. So that caused us to create a brand new business plan, which our board adopted. And then we looked at how we can fund certain things that we wanted to fund. We did a lot of grant writing during the pandemic. And unbeknownst to us, we got almost every single grant that we applied for and then felt really overwhelmed because now we have (laughs) all of this money and all of these projects. And we have a very small staff, so we weren't quite sure how to do that. But, you know, having more money than not enough money, we realized is a really good thing. One of those grants that we got was from the Iowa DOT and Iowa Development Disabilities Council. 
they had some extra money and they wanted to put it towards transportation. So what we used it for was to do a needs assessment. How are we not serving those people with disabilities or how could we better serve them? That led into a bigger discussion. We created a coalition. We went after another grant uh, for diversity and then that created even more talk about how can we better serve all of our communities. We have stakeholders involved, county supervisors, city officials, and writers. We included writers in this as well. So now what do we want to do? So there was a a plan created after that. And what that developed was people wanted more diverse modes of transportation. They wanted on demand. How can I just call you and say, hey, I need to go to the grocery store because I don't have any milk and I want to make, you know, banana bread now, you know, those types of things. So we were started to look at transportation a little bit different as well. We are used to serving people to get them to medical trips, to dialysis, to cancer treatments, to school, to those types of things. But what about the people that just want to live their life like we all have done, we've run out of toilet paper or milk or anything, and they just need to go to the store now. They don't want to wait 24 hours before they can do that. And that's where this program, uh, this on-demand, we started looking at all the different softwares that were out there. Brooke did an amazing job of organizing all of that and summarizing what all of those look like before we picked you know, a specific vendor And then we just had to go in and sell the board on that. The board had no problem with it. They thought this would be a really great opportunity for us to move forward. And it allowed us, after the pandemic started winding down, even though I realized we're still in it, we're not in the crust of it anymore, that we could come back different than what we were previously And that's what we've done. And Brooke has done an amazing job in figuring out and working from this idea that was brought by all of these people and bringing it into the reality of what HERDA is right now. And we're super excited about that. And Brooke, that's when all the fun began, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The the one thing I would add to that, Julia touched on the coalition and and the feedback we got from our writers. I would say the writers don't know how to use the terminology that we use in transit. So they didn't come to us and say, we want you to diversify your delivery method. We want you to diversify your services. They came to us and said, I want this. You know, as transit people, we had to ask more questions, get more details and figure out what they're really asking us for, which was sometimes kind of challenging because, you know, when you're trying to dig into the feedback that you're getting from people, you just want to make sure that you do it in a way that they don't see it as you arguing or shutting them down, that you are just trying to get further details and better understand what they're requesting. Because a lot of times the terminology, what they're saying and what it actually means is not always the same thing. And that's a good point too, because one of the things we wanted to make sure people were saying, well, transportation is a barrier. When you dig into that Oftentimes, it's not transportation that's the barrier. It's them not understanding how transportation works or the limitations of transportation. 
or it is the barrier is caused because there's no flexibility on the end of where they're trying to get to. And so transportation can only do so much. So I think through this process, Brooke and I were able to do a lot of education about transportation as well. And I think that also helped us be able to develop something that everyone was going to be able to understand at the most simplistic level, knowing that they could use that or they could stay and use what they were familiar with. But we didn't want to just throw it out there and say, everybody needs to change and do something different. And we were very mindful of that because we spent the time to get to know the people that are using our services and those that we weren't serving and what they needed as well in order to ride us. So we used the pandemic well in trying to just gain a lot of information, develop our business plan, redo our strategic plan, and make goals of where we know we want to go. Kudos to you for not just, you know, surviving the pandemic, but coming out stronger. I mean, that's incredible. I know a lot of transit agencies are just trying to keep their head above water. And obviously, I'm sure you had elements of that. But to be able to plan and then say, okay, what's the future going to look like? That's very strategic of you to <laughs> to do that and better serve you know, your population. Brooke will always tell you that anytime that there is a challenge or something that looks pretty dire, I'm the optimist that says, how can we make this an opportunity? We had many days where we were trying to hold our head above water, but you know, that wasn't every day. And we knew this was a great opportunity for as bad as it was, it was also a great opportunity. And we didn't want an opportunity wasted. To that point, I think Andrew will tell you, I've you know, done a lot of work more on the engagement side. So especially with transit planning for all and a lot of the things that you're saying is really kind of baked into that technical assistance center. But I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit more about how you approached the engagement side of, of this project and with such a diverse demographic, you know, from rural to urban and in between, but also different populations, people who maybe only spoke Spanish or not non-English speakers to older adults, people with disabilities, whoever that was for your service area. How did you as an agency approach that and make sure things were inclusive, but also accessible? So we have transportation advisory group and that's mostly comprised of representatives of different populations. So for example, our local AAA area agency on aging, our local one is called Aging Resources of Central Iowa. So we have a representative from their organization that comes to our tag. We looked at who were those community partners, those folks who sit on the tag, but we also looked at who isn't coming to the tag and tried to add on and amplify that. One of the things that we did through the NADTC grant um, was to do start to do some work with One Iowa, which is our statewide advocacy group for LGBTQ populations. And so bringing them in, we found that folks who are in smaller communities and they're part of the LGBTQ community don't always feel safe in acknowledging that information. So we have one writer who we take routinely for his kidney checks. And there was one time when the writer just didn't come out. The driver actually identified that something was wrong, something medically was going on where he wasn't very coherent, convinced him to get on the bus. Um, we ended up hearing back from the writer that this actually saved his life. He spent over a month in the hospital receiving care. 
And then later when we called to talk to him and get a success story, just as part of our normal, you know, outreach process that we use, sometimes when we go back to funders and say like, hey, here's some successes, here's a great story. But we reached back out and found that after that experience, this writer realized that they didn't want to live the rest of their life being mispronounced and they came out as trans. So she um, had a conversation with me that, you know, living in this small community, she loves the service. She could not live there without us, but she does plan to move away into a larger community because she doesn't feel comfortable being out in the public, shopping in the grocery store, dressing the way that she wants. But it's true that there are people in our communities that we need to make sure that we have safe spaces for and that we listen to them, that we're having policies and procedures that are signage, that the way that we train our drivers and our staff is inclusive of all community members. I never would have really thought we needed to develop more around so many different dynamic community members. But if we hadn't have gone through these, this whole process, these things wouldn't have come up for us. One of the other things that we were very conscious of doing is people that came to those focus groups. And um, we made sure that there were writers, writers with disabilities. We had someone who was blind and, you know, there were some things that were very important to her. So we allowed her to do some more research on them so that she could come back to us and, and talk about what that was, you know, what she needed us to do better. There was one lady, she didn't have internet to be able to join us for these groups. So we took her to the library, which was the one place that was open so that she could still participate and give her feedback because she was elderly and she had a disability and she wanted to use our services and she wanted to be part of how she could make those better for us. You know, so there's those types of things where you have to make sure that you're not excluding people for simple things that we typically take for granted, like having Internet at your home or, you know, having a smartphone or um, all of those types of things. So we were very, very mindful of who we needed to be at the table to tell us what they needed so that we could create a service that was going to be inclusive for them. One thing that this makes me think of is, so you're putting together a whole suite of options, basically, uh, to be able to serve the different needs around your different communities. And so so this on-demand service is additional to your other services. And so how do you, one, differentiate it from your other services? And then how do you or passengers decide which of these services is used when and where? Herta's previous scheduling software was actually developed and created back in the 90s. And I know I'm old enough that that doesn't sound like a long time ago. But it, just think about computers and cell phones and the difference in technology today than what we had in our lives in 1990. Um, that will already tell you it was a long time ago. So it was originally created to provide minimal dispatching tools over time where our transit needs changed and technology changed. People expect different things now. So we needed a more sophisticated technology. And we went ahead and, and picked a technology that was automated. It not only automated the process for our team, but it automated the process for customers as well. We talk a lot about 
the customers being empowered to self-service. And, you know, if you imagine using an Uber app or a Lyft app or any other TNC type app, you want to have that spontaneity where you pop the app open and you you can schedule for the future if you know, you know, what's coming up, but you can also look at what's available right now or how soon can it be available. That's what we wanted for the riders. We did find um, Via fit the majority of our needs. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't things that were, you know, concessions. There are some things that we had to give up along the way, but we had to prioritize what we wanted and what we wanted available now and the automation and the freedom to have that be much more automated than what we were manually doing before it took our staff a lot of time. We used to charge an additional fee for people who requested same-day rides. The automation allowed us to, you know, fit those trips into the existing schedules and actually helped increase ridership. The adoption has been great. There's about 700 people that have the app downloaded right now. So I was incredibly surprised by that compared to the amount of people that used to use it before. While the new software doesn't have every single thing we had before, uh, we are working with them. We meet with them weekly and they're trying to learn more about the use cases of the things that we lost to try and develop some of those features moving forward. So that won't just benefit HERDA, that will benefit our peers across the nation as some of this technology is rolled out. We're really excited to be able to be part of that. How do you determine if you're using an on-demand or a scheduled trip? Depends on when people call and when they need to go. But the, the beauty of what we're using now is that the writer doesn't have to know that. All they have to know is when do they want their ride, and they either call and they ask, they can email, or they can do that self-servicing on the mobile application, and they just put that information in, and it gets blended into what looks like one service to the writer. So they don't have to call and ask for, I want on-demand service today. You know, they see the same drivers, they see the same vehicles, it's the same contact information. So it really simplified the process for them. From an internal perspective, you mentioned kind of it, that transition to the software for your staff, for yourselves. How was the transition process? Well, we definitely had the fear of loss of control with our operations staff. You know, anytime there's change, especially when you're doing work manually and you trust yourself, now you have to go to this automated system and you have to trust that the system's going to do what you want and what you think is best. So we knew that getting that buy-in early on and the change was very important, which is why we involved, you know, not just myself that mainly does our project management, but also included the driver supervisor and the manager of our communications team and really sat them into the conversations and said, you know, this is what we need the system to do. This is how we need it to function and, and really involve them in it. So as they had exciting news to share with their team, it came out continuously ahead of time. You know, this is what we're looking forward to. So I think bringing the team in early um, and, you know, having them provide that feedback was definitely help. Again, like Julia said, there have been hiccups along the way, but they're much more understanding when they have all of the background information. To follow up on that, could you elaborate more on the timeline that that process took from knowing that, say, you were going with VIA or right around that timeline to flipping the switch and turning it on, essentially? How long was that? 
it was approved in April. We thought it was going to go live August 1st. And then as we were doing some thorough testing of the system once it was set up and technically ready to go live, our team did a lot of testing with our existing routes and what that would look like and then found that there were some tweaks that we wanted made. So we ended up pushing the start date back to September. We could have gone live in August, so I would say four months from the time that we signed all of the paperwork and and uh, worked with the team to get the system set up. That's Which is really, really quickly. Projects are usually <laughs> years-long endeavors. <laughs> we had been looking at software previously. So from the time we made the decision of who we wanted to go with and got the board to sign off on it until it went live was probably for four months, but um, we had done some previous work in, in um, checking out other softwares and, and looking at that and making that decision. So that took about three or four months as well to, to get through that process. But it was still under a year from start to finish, and that's kind of unheard of. But once we make a decision, we want to, <laughs> we want it. I've obviously worked for Julia for quite some time, and she's always, when there's been a new product that comes out, she wants me to look at it. She wants me to consider it, you know, especially if there's a product that's less expensive or it's supposed to make, you know, operations easier and more efficient. She always has a look at it. And I'm always thinking, oh, not another one, not another sales pitch. So I feel like over years of time, we were constantly seeing new products and things and mostly knowing we were planning on a change. But at least we kind of knew who the players were in the field. So we we had kind of a top list of contenders when we started really getting serious about changing the software. While you were testing, you mentioned that you uncovered some things that you wanted to fix or tweak a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how you did the testing and then how you made those tweaks happen uh, before you went live? One of the things we did was pull down a week's worth of data, um, of real data that had been verified. And we knew, you know, these were the trips that were requested, the times they were requested, what really actually happened. And we took that data and put it in the in the new system in VIA. And we looked at how did that system arrange the trips. And what we found was that the original, what we call like zones or parameters around how far a particular pool of vehicles could travel, it was too wide. And so it was sending vehicles back and forth between different towns when one vehicle could be providing that service exclusively. So we worked with VIA's tech team and they made some changes on the algorithm of their coding and kind of restricted down some different things so that the system operated much more like how we had been operating before, fear of loss of control. That was one of the things that kind of gave our team some justification in saying, okay, this is going to be okay. The system's going to work the way we want it to work, and it's going to do what we want. We can trust it now. But in the meantime, for them to update the, you know, all of the stuff in the back, we did decide that ultimately we wanted that change to happen because we were already changing things for the customers, and we already had some changes for the staff. We wanted to limit how big of an impact that would be. We didn't want to go live and then work to change it. So we pushed the start date back to September. That's awesome that you tested that ahead of time and you were able to do that. Because I think 
I've seen a few examples where the testing happened by jumping in the deep end and it it led to some pain. Uh, so being able to alleviate some of that, I think, might be a, a good point for a lot of people to take away from that. Another thing I would recommend, we did some marketing campaign around the app when we did go live and we told folks, so we we actually started not on September 1st, but more in the middle of the month. We did that for training reasons to allow us more time to go out and train the drivers. So we provided the last couple of weeks in September and the whole month of October free rides to anyone who self-scheduled. So that really encouraged people to download the app and to try using the service. We were excited that with being able to do on-demand trips, that the service would appeal to people who had historically thought of stigmas around public transportation, you know, only available for older adults, only available for people with disabilities, only available to people who have lower income. But if they had an app that was more user-friendly, that let them ride whenever they wanted, they didn't have to pre-cram their life, these were things that maybe would appeal to a new audience. And I think we're seeing that, having, you know, so many people adopt the, the smartphone application and writers who have never used us before. I would encourage people to think about if they're going to make a similar change. We have fewer large buses than we used to. We had earlier on started purchasing some Ford Transits. So those don't look like the typical bus for those with disabilities. You know, they they look more like a smaller vehicle. And so I also think that that as well has increased some of the ridership and taken some of that stigma out of what people typically think the, the buses are, are used for, even though we still use buses in service. Nobody gets to choose what kind of vehicle they get. But I do think that that, in, in addition to this, also helped kind of limit the, those stigmas. And shortly after Brooke and I had first started working at HERDA, um, our, our vehicles were a white bus with blue stripe that looked just like the ADA sticker was blue and white. We also said, we don't want that look anymore. We have to do something so that people know these buses are not just for, you know, the elderly or those with disabilities or those with lower income. And and it's taken us quite a few years, um, but I think we're starting to get there now. That stigma is starting to wear off and pe- more people are realizing that this service is for anybody who needs it or wants it. You know, gas prices went higher. Okay, well, you can ride the bus a lot cheaper than you can drive your car. Even though that we are in the more rural areas, we are really um, aware of, of trying to get more people to use public transit. The software itself looks at combining trips together, increasing your passengers per hour. It will try to move trips predicting that a driver's going to run behind on schedule so to help improve your on-type performance. One of the things that it'll do is it'll actually move trips off of one driver to another to try and get them off of the clock sooner if they're not needed. So it's really dynamic in ensuring that the service is more cost-effective. With the Rider app, before our app, the app that we had was only available in English. So now the app is available in two languages. 
which we picked English and Spanish based on our limited English proficiency plan. Spanish is the second most commonly spoken language. The system shows them a variety of times. So if you want an on-demand trip, it'll pop up and, and you say you want it at eight o'clock in the morning, it'll pop up and show you within a half an hour of the requested time what your various options might be and what it assumes your pickup and what it assumes your drop-off will be so that you can select that trip on your own, which I think is very helpful because our old application, when you used the smartphone app to schedule a ride, you were really just submitting a ride request. And that went and sat out in our software and waited for a dispatcher to take a look at it to see if we could even accommodate the trip. Meanwhile, the writer's just sitting there waiting to see what happens next in the app. So this really empowers them more to have that information faster and to schedule it right at that minute instead of waiting to find out what's going to happen. And maybe we can't even accommodate the request, which is never what you want someone to have to wait to find out. So do people find out immediately if there's not a trip available for them? Yeah, it'll it'll say that there's no seat available. And then we do occasionally, you know, folks can go in and adjust the time, try and get a different option. Or occasionally we'll have someone who calls in. Usually they're confused why they got the message. So they think that something's wrong. That's an educational opportunity for us. You know, okay, instead of 8, try 8.15. That'll push that half an hour window out a little bit. And then they start seeing the trips availability. Or our staff can just schedule the ride while they have them on the phone. So ultimately, you know, they have the independence if they want, or they can call the office and get the the support that they need. How has this changed what your dispatchers do throughout the day? This has actually freed up some of their time. We've done more cross-training. We've seen the hold times go down as far as morale goes. Initially, it was difficult. I will say that. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, the first couple of weeks were kind of hard. But they understood that it would get better. And now that the writers have had an opportunity to use it, things have settled out quite a bit. I think overall, the morale is much better. Um, We talk a lot about retention. You know, this is a really hard time to try and recruit new employees. So we want to do what we can to retain them. And I think making their, their job easier by providing technology that's more streamlined, ultimately, I, I think that's going to help with our long-term retention of our staff. How has this affected your drivers? Does that change their experience at all? The tablets that we use in the vehicles for the driver's schedule, they were due for life cycle replacement at the same time. We went ahead and bid out the tablets and the cellular service for the tablets and picked the vendor, went ahead and got the tablets, got them ready. Then we kept the two different data packages and tablets going at the same time so that we could have one set of tablets with the old application on it and the new tablets with the new application and give time to train the drivers. So that way we went out one-on-one and rode with them and had fake kind of trips in the system so they could see how to use it and got a feel for it. Then when it went live, Via actually sent several people here and they went out and rode with the drivers as well, as well as our office staff went and rode with them. Like I went and rode with a couple of drivers the first day so that they had some support and they knew that they weren't by themselves if they thought they were doing something wrong. And, um, you know, some of it was just first day glitches and first, you know, some of it was 
you know, being nervous about doing something different. But ultimately, I, I think it went really well. I was really impressed that we didn't have anybody pulling hair out. We didn't have anyone threatened to quit. So how is this helping you and other administrators in your day to day? The system is much more automated. And so we used to have to every day go in and do a verification process of the previous day's trips. And that is done automatically on VIA's side now. We also have quite a lengthy monthly reporting process that we have to go through based on sometimes which city, sometimes which county, but whatever funder is providing the service, they want something completely different than any other funder would ask for. So we worked with VIA ahead of time and they actually generate those reports in the format that we need and send them to us once a month. So we don't have to go out and, you know, sort through all this data and wait for it to generate, then export it. It's just automatically given to us and it's given to us after they've already done the verification process. So that's been helpful. One of the things we were concerned about was losing that really dynamic and sophisticated reporting through our old system that was really developed for rural systems. But I think we've come to a good compromise and it's working really well right now. So I'm happy about that. I also think in general, the writers are happy with the new app. And so having the writers be happy helps to resolve a lot of escalated complaints that maybe we used to get before or, you know, feedback that we would get before we've provided a solution for people that they wanted. So we're getting spending less of our time managing some of those situations. Julia, I don't know how, from your perspective, what's been better for you? I really do think that it has helped our management staff, especially those that work directly over customer service and dispatch and those that work directly over our drivers. And I call management staff. We have one over each of those two um, areas, but they have been able to do their management jobs and not have to step in and do as much problem solving because we have less of those problems. And so that makes it easier for them. And and they're able to then do more of the oversight and give more kudos to the drivers and review more of what the customer service are doing and being more involved in their training and monitoring. It has allowed our management staff to stay in a management role and not be on the day-to-day groundwork and the front line as much as they used to be when we were trying to resolve all of these other issues. Even though we're still have some hiccups and we still are going through trying to resolve some issues for the most part, our staff is very happy with it. And when staff are happy, it makes our job easier just for that very reason that they have better job satisfaction. We found out early on in the pandemic that there was a feature in our old system that wasn't working and it would be temporarily fixed. And by that, I mean a day or two, and then we would immediately have problems again. And so I had our team go back and pull some tickets from the old support line. And I found that it had chronically been a problem for almost two years. But we were so busy looking at pandemic-related problems that we weren't really tracking this one continuous failure. So when we worked with the software vendor to try and fix it, you know, and pointed out, this has been a consistent issue that we're putting a Band-Aid on. For almost two years, there's a problem here. This is a systemic issue. Now that we've made this change and we're a couple months into it, if we have a problem, if there's a glitch, if there's something that 
just as it worked in the way that it should. It's really prioritized. The communication is better. We have greater insight and transparency on the tickets that we put in and how how that's being reviewed, how that's being processed, how that's being fixed. Um, all of that has had a great improvement. And from a management perspective, I'm spending so much less time trying to just be that escalator and that conduit to find a solution because the support team is actually doing the support. So I don't have to be that person anymore, which is great. You have uh, mentioned once or twice that there were a few hiccups and challenges along the way in deploying this part of your service. And so could you go a little bit into what some of those challenges were and both internally and externally in the passenger facing side? The internal process, it was really more of the concern of loss of fear of control on our staff's end and the fear of the unknown. Once we got through that and involved them more upfront, I think that helped a lot because the communication wasn't just coming from Julia or from myself. It was coming from their immediate supervisor, their immediate manager that was telling them and letting them see things as they went along. And they got an opportunity to get excited about some of the new features and functions. As far as our external challenges, making sure people knew how to use the app, making sure that they knew when to start using it. So for example, you know, we did have people because we had that testing period, people were trying to schedule rides on it in August when we weren't going to be actually using it until September. So monitoring two different places and communicating with the customers on what to expect and when to expect it, providing, you know, data points to funders, for example, since we're not doing our own verification anymore, there is a bit of a delay between when the system is confirmed that the verification is done versus when we used to get that done because we did that daily. So we had to communicate back to the funders and let them know some reports maybe they're used to getting by the 5th or the 10th of the month might now be the 10th or the 15th that the format was going to look a little different. It was just a lot of communicating, a lot of information, providing information and making sure that they knew what to expect and when to expect it. We already knew that the application was screen reader friendly. We knew what languages it was available in. So I think just making sure that in the back end that the system ran was more of the preliminary work that we did. However, when we were talking about the app only be available in two languages, which I say only, I mean, I'm really glad to have two rather than just one, but only available with the option of two languages. We knew that was something that we needed to look at in other ways. And we found that their web portal could then integrate with Google Translate, which would give us up to 99 different languages. So that's when Julia mentioned we had that grant through NADTC, that planning grant. We worked with our coalition to say, you know, what's the primary focus here? And that language barrier kept coming up. So that was one of the solutions that we went with for that project. You mentioned both grouping and your demographics. I'm curious, how has this changed? How many passengers are on the bus at any one time? And also have your demographics shifted at all now that people are starting to realize that this is a general public service? 
Yes, we have new writers. I haven't looked yet at what the demographics of the writers are. That's something that we probably need to start looking at and then working with our outreach program to try and do more around that information. I know one of the things that the new software will do is if a writer is using the app, we can pick kind of like a pop-up survey. For example, how is your ride? And find out that customer survey information. But we could customize it with other questions as well that isn't necessarily about the trip, but about them. Or, you know, if we had a question on how many of you would want rides on Christmas Day or, you know, something around a community event or what other language do you speak? We can put that type of survey that pops up after their trip and capture additional data. So I think that'll be a good opportunity for us down the road to look at what our outreach and our DEI plans need to be moving forward. Has the number of people grouped on to one bus or vehicle increased? Oh, definitely. And that I don't have a huge data point to provide um, as far as like passenger per hour yet. But I can tell you just in doing our NTE reports that the number of vehicles operating in maximum service hasn't significantly increased, but the ridership has consistently gone up from month to month since we got the new technology. A transit agency, no matter how small they are, they have to have their goals written down. They have to know where they want to go. We knew that we wanted an on-demand service. We thought it was the right thing for our community, but we're just sitting here in these offices. So we needed to go out to the community and say, what is it that you need to see that? Does that even match what we think they need? In our case, fortunately, it did, but it doesn't always. So, you know, do that outreach, get out there and talk to your people and talk to people that are writing it, but also talk to the people you aren't serving. We found one of the best ways to do that is to go to like farmer's markets. There's a lot of people at farmer's markets and we would just have like our outreach or our mobility coordinator just go and have the tablet and we would just ask them questions like, why aren't you writing? You know, a lot of times we found out it was they didn't know that they could use the service or whatever it is. And you can figure out, oh, well, this is why, because we're not reaching out to these people or they don't know about us. We need to do more education. But once you figure out your goal, just start taking those baby steps toward that goal. We didn't come about this in the four months that it took us to decide to implement it. There was a lot of work that went into that beforehand. And then we would just figure out these little steps. And like I said, we applied for funding. We got stakeholder input, support. We educated. We outreached. There's all these things that go into it. But do something. If you don't do anything, you're going to stay where you're at and you're never going to move forward. So don't expect that it's all going to come all and happen all at one time, but start taking those baby steps and you will eventually get there. I know a lot of small transit systems have very small staff. I tell people all the time, rural systems usually don't have departments. We don't have departments full of all these different people. And we are no different. We do not have a lot of staff. We talk about departments, but we're usually talking about one department head that's, you know, overseeing three people. That's our department. It just sounds bigger when you say it's a department, <laughs> but it's really not. We prioritize and 
we make sure that everybody gets bought in and brought in to what we're doing and what the vision is. And a lot of times when Brooke and I are talking to our other staff, they have great suggestions that her or I may be never thought of. And so we bring them in and then they're part of the team. And, you know, how can we work all of that? Right down to our dispatchers, our customer service, our drivers. We're all people. We're all serving. We all have ideas. So talk to your people. Dream big and then manage the plan. There's a lot of things we're doing today that some of them are things we talked about 10 years ago. (laughs) And it wasn't anywhere that we could fund and it wasn't anything we had the capacity to take on. But just documenting it and saying like, I would love to be here. I would love to have this. And then over time, you'll hear about a different grant or a different opportunity. And then you'll think, hey, remember that thing we wanted to do? Well, maybe this is how we start to get there. I mean, we didn't have the funding in our budget to be able to do all of the things that we've done in the past couple of years. It definitely was not without, you know, grant writing and a lot of creativity to be able to get here. So we're just excited to be able to work the plan. And I should add that our writership has gone up 22%. Wow. We started with the new software. It's already paying off. With the benefit of, you know, hindsight and looking back to either the implementation period or even before, what would you suggest other agencies consider when trying to adopt this type of a service? I would consider bringing somebody in that has a lot of knowledge. We did a technical grant with CTAA. We did get some money to do that, but we knew CTAA had the knowledge to help us figure out what we needed to do better within our service area. And that plan that they developed, which was just a few pages long, but it was very condensed and it gave us a starting point to say, this is what an expert is telling us we need to do. This is how we're going to best serve our community. And then we went out there and started testing it. Would it be, we talked to the people, this is what you know, the experts are saying, does that jive with what our customers really want? There you've got customers and experts and bringing that together also really helps with getting buy-in. It also helps with grant writing because you don't have just the transit system who's saying, hey, we really need this. We don't have anything to back it up, but believe us, we really need this. We actually had something that said, This is where we need to go. This is why we need this funding. That doesn't always have to include money. You go to somebody who has the knowledge that can give you the stats or that can give you what you need, and then you use that as your catalyst to say, we can take this data and we can do something with it. That may just be sending your mobility coordinator out to the farmer's markets to figure out Who are you not serving and why are you not serving them? And if 90% of the people you talk to come back and say, I didn't have any idea it was your service, you know right there that your marketing needs to be beefed up. Your education needs to be beefed up. That doesn't necessarily take a lot of money. It does take some time, but that's something very simple that we've learned over the years, just little things like that. And then we like, well, that's something we can build upon. How do we do it? We talk about that a lot with justification of need. As an example, we work with the different public health offices as they develop their community health needs assessments. 
And we don't go to the meetings and say, oh, well, we can do that. We can solve your problems. We go and we listen. Sometimes there's something to vote on. But ultimately, the more detailed we can get them to be in those plans when they say, you know, they need transportation or transportation's a barrier, we'll elaborate on that. Don't just write that transportation's a barrier. Tell us how it's a barrier. Tell us how it needs to be improved or what you need from transportation so that, like Julia talked about, when there is a grant opportunity, we can say, hey, look at this. Here is this documented justification of me from a reputable source, the local public health office. This is why we need to solve this problem and this is how the funding can be used. And that really supports, you know, your grant applications. Eric, you know, in your previous work, you have a lot of experience with that really working with those community partners and reaching out and engaging with people to find out what are they saying? Is that the number of days a week you provide service? Is that the hours within the day? Is that not doing trips into a larger metro area outside of your service area? It could be so many different things, but it's not elaborated on. And that happens from the customers, happens from the healthcare providers. Sometimes the healthcare providers are the hardest ones to get to come to the table. So you really have to be diverse in who you're working with and engaging. Thank you to Julia and Brooke for taking the time today to talk to us. And then also for all of your work at HERDA and to all of the HERDA staff for everything that everyone is doing over there. We're always excited to hear about new projects that keep popping up over at HERDA. And so I'm sure that we will bother you again uh, for more <laughs> more information for spreading out to our peers. So with that, thank you all. Thank you.